Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Sunday, September 19th episode of Poets and Muses, where we chat with poets about their inspirations. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. You can find us at poetsandmuses.com, as well as on Instagram and Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter at poetsandmuses.com. Now, in addition to the Poets and Muses website and SoundCloud page, you can also listen to the Poets and Muses podcast on your preferred podcast platforms. Since December of 2018, we have featured over 130 poets from 15 countries on five continents. And we hope to continue to do that with your support. And you can support us by going to poetsandmuses.com forward slash donate and donate either via PayPal or your preferred credit cards. With us today is Andrea Carter-Brown, with whom I will be discussing her poem, The Old Neighborhood, and my poem, Plus ça change. And now let us welcome our poet guest of the week, Andrea Carter-Brown. Hi, Andrea. Thank you very much for coming on to Poets and Muses. Hi, Imogen. Very, very nice to be with you. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. You brought with you your poem, The Old Neighborhood. Before we get into that, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself. I've been writing poetry for about 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, the My latest book is called September 12, mm-hmm. and it's based on my experiences as what's called a near survivor of 9-11. Mm-hmm. The material was very difficult, mm-hmm. 20 years to write. Well, I would say 18 because my press, the Word Works, decided to publish the manuscript in 2019 mm-hmm. because they wanted to bring it out for the 20th anniversary. Right. And I'm feeling a great sense of purpose accomplished and relief Mm -hmm. that the book has come out now. In some ways, I think it's better now than it would have been even five years ago because the pressure of what the country's gone through, what the world is going through, Mm -hmm. has, I think, made people more receptive to thinking about 9-11 as a fulcrum which changed the world, partly because of the pandemic Mm -hmm. and the isolation in which we've we've all lived and the kind of fears that we've had, which frankly are very similar to the fears that we had after 9-11 in New York City. People are more open to remembering and reevaluating what happened. Mm-hmm. And I can tell from the reception my book is receiving that there's a more thoughtful evaluation going on now. Mm-hmm. So that's what my life has been. I mean, I've published during those 20 years, I published two other collections of poetry. Mm-hmm. Right before 9 11, my first chapbook was published. And all the copies of it, which I had received two weeks before 9-11, were in my apartment. Mm -hmm. They were contaminated by dust. Mm -hmm. The publisher reprinted them for me. Mm -hmm. Six months later, sent me new boxes. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, I feel like my entire published writing life 
is connected to 9-11 directly or indirectly. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering, first of all, how many poems are in September 12th, the book? The book is 110 pages, Mm -hmm. of which 90 pages are poems. Mm -hmm. There's maps in it. I'm very excited about that. Mm -hmm. Um, There's notes. The original concept for the poem was to document my experiences um, when I fled that day. Mm -hmm. Um, I had different experiences than many other people. I didn't see the iconic, now iconic, video images of the planes going into the towers or the towers coming down. Mm. until about two o'clock that afternoon. Mm. Um, My own experiences were from very close and below, and then I fled south. Mm. I think I fled south because I was too frightened to go north. North would have taken me directly below the towers, and already people were falling, and these chunks of the building were coming off and crashing to the ground. Mm-hmm. And I just knew that was would be stupid to go that way. I, I wanted to survive. Mm-hmm. I don't think anybody thought the towers would come down the way they did. Um, yeah. I certainly thought they would just topple over. I wasn't sure what direction they would topple in, mm-hmm. but I didn't think that they would sort of collapse in place. Mm-hmm. And so... I thought that I would stay close to water Mm. because I would jump into the water. That would be the good thing to do if I really needed in in haste to get away. I maybe naively thought that I could at least tread water. I used to be a good swimmer, Mm. although the surface of the bay was quite turbulent that day. It was fairly windy. Mm. It would have been hard, and in fact, when I was on the Staten Island Ferry, we passed people who had jumped in, mm. who wanted to be rescued. Mm. And the nature of the Staten Island Ferry is that you can't, you couldn't reach people and bring them in. So I saw them, they waved, they gestured frantically, and then they were gone. So I have no idea. I hope some boat found them. Mm. It was before the, the really choreographed evacuation with boats. Mm-hmm. So I worry about those people the way I worry about a lot of other people. I should have mentioned earlier that we lived a block from the World Trade Center. Um, I think I was going to ask you that question, yeah. For some reason, when I was reading your poems, I had thought you were... I don't know why, I guess because of the church that you mentioned with the cemetery, whose name I forgot, the, the, which I, I can see the church, the one that's right next to Broadway, right? Yeah, there were, there's, a, there's a big church in, on Lower Broadway called Trinity, mm-hmm. yeah. a, a cemetery where I think Alexander Hamilton is buried, yeah. Um, yeah. but just adjacent to the old World Trade Center site on the east is a chapel Mm. belonged to Trinity. And it also had a a cemetery. It's a smaller building, very old, and the cemetery is quite old. And that church 
And that cemetery became the staging area for volunteers who mm. helped workers on the pile in the months and years to follow. Mm. So the poem that I'm going to read documents the world as it was just before the attacks. Mm. And I chose not to put what happened in the poem. I wanted the poem to preserve that world. Mm -hmm. Now it's probably a good time for you to read it to us and then we can we can talk about it so okay. people will have the context. Okay, great, thank you. No the title is The Old Neighborhood. Where is the man who sold the best jelly donuts and coffee? You sipped raising a blue Acropolis to your lips. The twin brothers who arrived in time for lunch hour with hot and cold heroes where liberty dead ends at the Hudson. Courteous, small-boned Egyptian in white robe and crocheted skull cap in the parking lot behind the Greek Orthodox shrine whose bananas and dates you could always count on. How about the tall, slim, dark brown man with dreadlocks cascading to his waist, who grilled Hebrew National Franks to perfection and knew just the right amount of mustard each Kanish wanted. The cinnamon-skinned woman for whose roti people lined up halfway down church. The falafel cousins who remembered how much hot pepper you preferred. Don't forget the farmers who schlepped up from Cape May twice each week at dawn to bring us whatever was in season at its peak. Last August, blueberries and white peaches. What about the lanky fellow who sold green and red and yellow bears and fish and snakes in plastic sandwich bags with twist ties? His friend a block away who scooped still warm nuts from a copper cauldron into palm-sized wax paper sacks he twisted at the corners to close. The couple outside the post office with their neatly laid out golden books. The shy Senegalese with briefcases of watches, except in December when they sold Christmas trees. The Mr. Softy who parked every evening by the cemetery to revive the homeward hurrying crowd. I know none of their names, but I can see their faces clear as I still see everything from that day as I ride away from the place we once shared. Where are they now and how? Thank you. Thank you. This poem uh, is in couplets, though there are many, many enjambments and they're written in sentence form. So I was wondering the choices that you made for this poem to become the form that it, it takes now. Well, after the towers came down, all of us were thinking about tall, skinny, pairs. Mm. And I very quickly decided to 
write this poem in couplets. Mm. I also walked around the neighborhood in my mind to capture as much of the street life and the street vendors as I could remember. Mm. Um, the enjambments are, for me, a form of rupture mm. and a form of continuity. Mm. So they drive the syntax down the page. The rhetorical repeated questions mm. are an expression for me of how little we knew then. This poem is one of the first that I wrote after 9-11. Oh. I didn't write anything for six months. Okay. I was a little embarrassed that I wasn't writing because most of my writer friends were very quickly able to express themselves. Mm. Um, I just, words failed me. Mm. Part of what was destroyed for me that day was the idea that communication over differences would bridge them. Mm. So I, in some ways, I lost my faith in language. And if you're a writer and you lose your faith in language, it's devastating. Mm -hmm. But I couldn't get these people out of my mind. Mm -hmm. You know, they were still alive inside of me. And many of them may still be alive today. Mm -hmm. um, I hope so. I hope they all are. Mm -hmm. um, they made my life richer. They represented the New York that I loved. Mm -hmm. So I thought of this as a love poem for them. Mm -hmm. But I think... When it was finished, only then did I understand how the form served the material. Mm. You must know as a poet, part of you is working consciously, but you hope a lot is happening subconsciously. Mm, yeah. yeah. And some of that, if you're lucky, you see later when you look at your work. And some of it, people will point out things in this poem now that I wish I could say I consciously did. <laughs> but I'm happy that I did them, whether it was conscious or unconscious. Right, right. I'm also a New Yorker. I, I grew up in New York and uh -huh. ex-New Yorker <laughs> as well. And um, <laughs> I love for different reasons. <laughs> and, uh -huh. Yeah, I, I've been down to that area. I don't, I don't particularly like crowds that much, you know, which tells you already that I'm I'm the wrong person for New York. <laughs> but you know, it really brought back to me the hustle and bustle of downtown of the Wall Street area. Um, oh, good. You yeah. know, when the towers went up, mm -hmm. they were a wasteland for many years. Mm -hmm. The Port Authority that owned them had a terrible time renting out space. Mm. The, um, and in fact, uh, they ended up renting a lot of space themselves, as did the state of New York. Mm. So if you wanted to get a fishing license in Manhattan, you had to go to the North Tower to the Department of Fisheries office to get the license. Mm. You probably remember there were the two very tall towers and they were surrounded, sort of flanked by low buildings, which mm. were only maybe four or five stories high. And then there was this 
huge, empty, windswept plaza in the middle that I swear it was the coldest place in New York City. It just the, whatever wind was coming through just whooshed through there. And it was only decades later that this lively, these vendors and came and the vendors came because the buildings finally got rented. Mm. When we first moved to Battery Park City, which was in 1987, it was still underpopulated. Mm. First of all, many of the buildings in Battery Park City hadn't been built yet. Mm. There was no food store. <laughs> there was no bank. There was a drugstore that sold milk <laughs> and a dry cleaner. And for everything else, you had to go somewhere else. Mm. Over time, that changed, and services came in, and other buildings went up, and it became a very lovely place to live. I remember when we, when later I could smell grass feet that had been mown. I mean, where in New York City do you get to smell grass? <laughs> <laughs> um, and air, you smelled the Hudson River, you smelled the tides, mm. which were mostly good smells. Um, <laughs> there was the constant traffic of boats coming and going, sailboats, and then every night you got to see the sunset over New Jersey. It was like the closest you could come to living in a natural world <laughs> in a huge urban environment. That being said, uh, the history of where Battery Park City, how it came to be, is that there were 19th century piers jutting out into the Hudson mm -hmm. along the western edge of Man Lower Manhattan. And those are the piers where, when Whitman was alive and lived in New York, there were oyster barges docked there. Mm -hmm. And he would go there to eat oysters, which he loved. Mm -hmm. Somewhat later, Robert Fulton's ferry docked there. Mm -hmm. Immediately before the towers went up, the piers for the Jersey commuter ferries, that's where they docked. Um, mm -hmm. But when they excavated the um, foundation to build the towers, you know, you probably read about this, they had to go very, very deep, mm -hmm. and they had to go through bedrock, which is how they could have these tall buildings. Mm. And they dumped that excavated bedrock among the rotting piers, mm. which had been worm-eaten and were not that stable anymore. Right. And that landfill took years to settle enough for buildings to go up on it. Mm -hmm. So when I was living in the apartment complex where we lived, I was living on a rock from the World Trade Center excavations. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, I never liked the World Trade Center when I lived there. Uh, Thank you. I just, <laughs> what? Thank you. I, I was wondering. Oh, I hated it. If... There's, a, there's a poem in my book called Pinstripe Bullies. <laughs> and that's how I felt about them. Um, they were so out of, out of human scale as to be disgusting. Uh, and I didn't even like them. Forget the scale. I just thought architecturally there was no beauty to them whatsoever. Yeah, um, they were such ugly buildings. 
Yes, they were. And frankly, I think that's one of the reasons they had trouble renting them. But that's that's my own private opinion. So, <laughs> um, and I never loved them. But when they were gone, of course, I missed them. Because we had lived there for 14 years when 9-11 happened. Uh, which is the longest I ever lived anywhere in New York City. Mm. I won't romanticize my feeling about them. Mm. I will never think they're beautiful. <laughs> I think that what they put up now is even worse, actually. It just feels like an enormous <laughs> cemetery slab. I, it's, it's so ungraceful. It's I hate the lower Manhattan skyline now. But anyway... I'm sure people will come to love it. Yeah. I always prefer the financial center, which had that glass atrium, which was, right. To me, it was nice. It had the palm trees inside, right, I think. Well, I wrote a poem about that, too. Mm. We spent a lot of time there. I loved, it was called the Winter Garden. It's still Mm -hmm. there. They've rebuilt it. There's a poem in my book called The Winter Garden about what it looked like on September 15th. Mm. and about the history of those palm trees and you you probably remember the beautiful marble floors which were in intricate patterns of many different color marble and sometimes when we would be coming home after midnight because the winds were so fierce we would stay inside we would mm. come up subways into the concourse and then we would come across the enclosed pedestrian bridge mm. that ended at the winter garden mm-hmm. and after midnight the workers were there polishing the marble mm. with those awkward heavy machines that have the circles of belt that were around mm. and they would be wearing socks on their feet so they didn't scratch the floors mm. and that happened every night I didn't know that. Yeah. At some point, I want to write about them, too. Mm-hmm. I really in, actually, yeah, enjoyed is the word, the poem, because of the memories that it brought back. And because of the memories, that's what makes the ending so heartbreaking, because it's in context of what happened. I've been finally back to the world Center. Trade Center's site years yeah. and years later. I couldn't go for the longest time. I mean, I, it's it wasn't like a place where I frequented previously. Yeah. I only went up to the top of the towers by sheer kind of an accident. Someone invited me to a party up there. Uh-huh. So, uh-huh. so I've only been in the tower once. I think a couple of years before 9-11. So I felt kind of lucky after what happened to have at least gone in there to have seen it, you know. I understand that, yeah. At the same wanted- time, as you, I just <laughs> despise how ugly they were, especially in the setting of that area, you know, which is one of the oldest parts of European settled New York, right? That's where it got first kind of build up back in, what was it? 17th century uh, but you even before that and you know you talk about the poet going to eat oysters there and there are streets named after all the oyster shells that 
with that yes. are embedded in the streets. That part of the New York is the one that looks most like a European city because it's got really messed up street. Yes, it does. <laughs> It's a part where you could get lost in because it, it's not on a grid system, unlike the rest of uh, Manhattan. Um, yeah. So it's a got, it's got a lot of history, both good and bad. It was used as a fort, the the southernmost part of it, and also there there was a slave market. I forget where yeah. they were dug up. But it's near. They, were, they were that was dug up just north of where City Hall is now, mm -hmm. near Chamber Street, yeah. and it was right at the wall that enclosed the original Dutch settlement. Mm. And they discovered that cemetery and the site when they were excavating to build the new Federal Tower. Mm. In my book, there's quite a few references to the native peoples that lived in New York and in the surrounding areas, mm. which were called the Lenny Lenape. Mm. And when Hudson first sailed into what's now New York Harbor, mm. It was in 1609, mm -hmm. and he had unfriendly encounters with bands of Lenny Lenape all mm -hmm. throughout the area, mm -hmm. on Long Manhattan, on Staten Island, on New Jersey, going up the Hudson. And sadly, but in some ways predictably, there was the first skirmish that ended in death the crew of Hudson's boat, which was called the Half Moon, mm. was afraid of these people. Mm. And it was their fear which made the encounters escalate mm. in a bad way. Mm. And I wanted to get that in the book as I wanted, just the same as I wanted to get the street life in the book. I, I think it's really yeah. interesting to see the cycling of events, right? To see that certain things continue, whether even though technology has changed, you know, people have even changed, yet some of these emotions, such as fear, especially of strangers, that drive people to commit such heinous acts, continue to sort of cycle back and drive horrible events like massacres of indigenous people or colonization even, and, and then things like 9-11. It's actually kind of speaking on that and also in a way not directly responding to this your question at the end of your poem, the where have they gone and how, that I wrote my poem, Plus Ça Change, which I'm going to read, and then we can talk about these two poems together and how they relate to each other. Good. I look forward to hearing you read it. Plus Ça Change. There was a time when I feared a loved one's silence may be permanent. 
when my fingers crinkle the pages of an address book in a frantic search for assurances. Yet I was spared the terror of direct loss to witness the detritus of retribution's lasting cost. Now I carry security in reams of dear one's datasets in a pocket device that's more wormhole than a line where I can terraform my roving thoughts that nevertheless silos and channels our beliefs according to our sex. The sagacious say our creations inherit the biases we carry blind, while we claim we simply desire an easier way to relate. Then tuck our heads into the carapace, thickly lay of anxiety and fear, to wonder our tailored universes alone, inquiring why our landscapes are deserted by our easy acquaintances of yore. Very powerful. I'm sitting here just shaking my head up and down, yes, as you read the whole poem. Love the title. Thank you. I love the three sections of it. Tell me more what you meant by easy acquaintances of your. You know, the three sections, as you were mentioning before, some things that you do as a writer, you don't realize until they're done. And Mm -hmm. this is sort of one of them where the three sections beginning with the past and then into the present and then into the future. And in some ways, I had your poem in mind when I wrote this. I also was thinking about all the conversations I've had with poets, especially poets of color who's talked about wanting to find their people with whom they feel comfortable, with whom they feel like they do not need to explain who they are because it's an exhausting exercise. And I think, weirdly enough, this is how people in dominant cultures also feel, right? Without necessarily explaining that process. And that is a very human thing to want to feel that we belong. Mm-hmm. Um, we can have very pleasant conversations with people that we do not know well, but when we get down to the really getting to know them, we might realize that there are differences, whether or not it comes from a difference in culture or, you know, it could be anything else. And so when I was reading your poem about the vendors and the, the different people that that was in the neighborhood where you lived prior to September 11th, and then now they're gone. Reading it from today's eyes, 20 years later, I also thought about, because the the people you list are so diverse, I also think about how in the rebuilding process, in the, the planning stage, there was supposed to be a Islamic community center. Mm-hmm that really just made people furious, brought about such debate, and our immediate reaction was to invade Afghanistan. There was no question, very little questioning about that. I was reading after I spoke with the Afghan poet that I interviewed, and he had mentioned the price tag of the war and I looked up the price tag and there's an AP article on that and doesn't just talk about the economic 
price tag of the war, but the human cost of the war. And in that human cost are all the people that you mentioned who might or might not be there anymore, partly because of the discrimination that they faced, because of the fact that the terrorists who ran the plane into the towers were Muslim, despite the fact that there were Muslim victims working in the towers that were lost. Mm-hmm. So these are some of the things I had in mind and and when writing this poem and also thinking about how our technology has changed so much since then. Apparently the first iPhone didn't come out until 2007, I think. Mm-hmm. And it's just changed our lives, right? These smartphones, we have basically little computers in our pockets. In comparison to what happened in the first stanza, where I talked about my own experience with 9-11, because I was in New York at the time. Uh-huh. Where were you? I lived in one of the boroughs. So to me, what was the strangest thing was the, was the quiet of my neighborhood when I finally went outside. Uh-huh. In comparison to the utter chaos I was watching on TV. Because... 24-7 news was already burgeoning. So they were just, they just kept playing video clips. And in the beginning, knew, nobody knew exactly the extent of the damage, right? Because multiple sites were being attacked. At some point, somebody, a friend told me the Washington Wall was on fire, which was untrue. But it was... There was a lot of rumor. Yeah. And, and you know, because it was just... Chaotic. So you had that firsthand experience of the chaos. What the first stanza refers to when I was talking about the address book is that I went through my address book and started calling everybody I knew in that address book. Wow. Wow. I understand. Yeah, what a gesture. And I was just scared. And I literally, there was one person that I just fell in love with. I couldn't find him. And he worked downtown. And I didn't know what had happened to him. Yeah. Until later. So I thought maybe he got caught in the towers coming down, maybe. You know, because, as you said, you don't know. Even though I, I could see it in imploding, basically. We didn't know the area of effect, just how how much debris was coming down, how like how far people were being harmed, physically harmed, not not well, not the later harm where the dust was harming people, the contamination. So because I couldn't hear from people, and as you might have remember as well or experienced yourself, the cell phones were all dead. They were useless. Well, that's, that's why my husband thought I was dead for about four hours because until I got to Staten Island Mm. I could not reach him Mm. and he was never able to reach me because of course the cell phone towers were on top of the North Tower Mm. so yeah I think that people were frantic yeah I don't think we realized how dependent we had become on the new technology Mm -hmm. and believing that it would 
be there for us. Right. I mean, flying into planes, into tall buildings was something that no one done before. Right? I mean, well, yeah, it was a failure of imagination. Right. Osama bin Laden had tried to blow up those towers from the basement. I was there then, too. Wow. 1993. And that I felt. Mm. And I have a poem about that, too. Because mm. those deaths, which were memorialized in a very small circular fountain surrounded by weeping cherry trees at the base of the North Tower, sort of between the two towers, directly above where the truck exploded in the garage underneath. Mm -hmm. That was actually the nicest part of that central courtyard mm. that I was talking about earlier that was just a wasteland. Mm. Those people, they've been lost. Their deaths have been lost in what came later. Mm. And I think that's a terrible tragedy too. Mm. Um, when I ended up on Staten Island, uh, I collapsed, um, mm -hmm. and some strangers literally practically carried me about six blocks to the local police precinct. Mm -hmm. They handed me over to a uniform cop standing outside. And, of course, they had no communication with what was going on either mm -hmm. because the quote, emergency command center located adjacent to the World Trade Center by Giuliani. They lost all communication there. Mm -hmm. So anyway, he, he put his arms around me. Mm -hmm. He gathered me to him and he held me until, I don't know, five, five minutes later or so when I stopped sobbing. Mm -hmm. And at that point, he said to me, besides telling me to stay close to him, that I would be safe, which, you know, he couldn't have kept me safe, but it was good to hear. Mm -hmm. He said, you know, for years, and this is a quote, for years we've known something like this would happen, but we didn't do anything about it. Yeah. I feel like a lot of some of the disasters that we have gone through, that we are currently going through, have oh. a very similar theme. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, when I heard it from him, I thought, okay, 1993, and there had been various terrorist attacks or hijackings through the 80s and the 90s, but nobody put it together, st somewhat stupidly. And that sort of deer in the headlights frozen watching of the towers imploding on the news. Mm -hmm. I feel like that was a delayed reckoning. The shock was a delayed reckoning of what had been going on in the world that we just did not want to see. Yeah. This is something I've written about as well is about people who are living in relative comfort as we Americans, you know, average Americans is what I mean, are not used to 
paying attention even to the horrors of the world, right? Because Osama bin Laden used the excuse of because he had been a Mujahideen fighter during our Cold War with the Soviet Union using Afghanistan's strategic geography to fight that Cold War and then abandoning the Mujahideens. And now we pulled out after, you know, apparently, as I was saying to you before, reading this AP article, there was no declaration of war. Congress had not made a declaration of war. Well, we fought a lot of wars that way since World War II. Yeah. But, you know, I, I was kind of shocked with Afghanistan because I had thought that there was, but apparently I misremember because it's such a huge event. There was such emotional momentum with the war that I thought there was. So I was shocked yeah. to read that there wasn't. Yeah. Even then, Bush couldn't get that through. Mm. So, I mean, to make it official doesn't mean that they didn't allocate money to it. But, I mean, the Korean War was not declared a war either. Mm. So, um, you know, and there's a sort of essential dishonesty about that, which, in my opinion, relates to a lot of essential dishonesty in this country and culture, which we're having a hopefully delayed but ultimately successful reckoning. I think you can tell by my poem that I don't feel like that is going to happen because some of it because even though our technology keeps moving forward, yeah. yeah, it's the same mindset, right? And now it's even more accelerated because of this technology advancement. It, we are able with social media to basically stick with our own people, whatever that means, right? Especially in thoughts and, and ideas and it becomes echo chambers. We don't talk with each other anymore. And each group is uh, kind of digging their heels in. I, I hear you. I understand what you mean. I want to say you're probably right, but deep inside of me, I don't think I can live if I don't believe that there's some hope that we'll find our way. I have to take a long view because we seem to be still on a sort of downward spiral and a increasing deterioration of communication. Mm -hmm. But you and I are wordsmiths. We are about finding meaning, finding connection, communicating. I mean, I don't know about you. I grew up, I had a, from the outside a solid, I mean, a, a, a middle-class background, mm -hmm. but there were problems, and, um, and I had problems, mm -hmm. and I was felt extremely isolated, mm -hmm. and by the standards of the day, my parents did the best they could. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that good, because the standards of the day were really bad, <laughs> right. but if I hadn't been able to read about other people, and other lives, and other times. I don't know how I would have come out of that and had a life, mm -hmm. uh, you know, found happiness in marriage, figured out what I wanted to do with my life, figured out how to do it. 
So I carry with me that experience. Mm-hmm. And I understand, I, I mean, I when you were talking earlier and then again now about each of us, you know, seeking out our own, what we think are our own and not crossing to connect with people who were different from us. And that's certainly gotten worse and worse and worse. And so when you were talking about the Muslim Center near the World Trade Center and the controversy about that, and I remember that well, that happened before we moved here. Mm -hmm. And eventually we moved back into our apartment Mm -hmm. six months later. And we lived that crazy life where we had to walk everywhere to get anywhere. And and I would walk miles out of the way because I didn't want to go near the site. Mm-hmm. But as we went about our lives, Imogen, people could tell that we were locals. We must have had some kind of haunted look on our faces mm-hmm. because I saw them sort of say to themselves or say to people they were with, she lived here. Mm-hmm. She saw that. I felt all of us living there, and I know this because it eventually got documented, felt we had survived only to be marginalized. Hmm. And what was done in, there was a big controversy again this year about the 20th anniversary observation. There have been ongoing controversies about the museum and the Mm -hmm. memorial because the victim's families don't feel adequately honored. The people who live nearby feel completely left at the side of the road in any discussions about what to do. Mm -hmm. So I actually have not been to the memorial. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to get up my courage to go. I would like to give a reading there from this book. It's, uh, um, but it's excuse me. It's uh, it's difficult. The outside area is more. I don't know the inside area. I've been to it even inside the inside the building, and yeah. they repurpose some of the old steel, and um, maybe because we know what happened, it just feels like you're in a inside a mausoleum Um, well that's what you are actually yeah and also you know above you regular business is being conducted it's just really weird i mean like all of the human world is pretty much built on top of graves right pretty much yes of course yeah um (laughs) good good thought good image at the same time because we live through it it feels so much more sacrilegious, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. To be in there. I don't know how it could feel right in any way for the next, I don't know, how many decades. I think you're right. All of that makes sense. But I have heard from many people that it feels like the Disneyland of the dead. <laughs> yeah. And... And I don't want to experience that. Yeah, yeah. It'll make me angry. So I feel like, and this comes back to the 
Muslim. It was a cultural center yeah. is what it was to be. Mm-hmm. So there's that, and then there's the ginning up to go first into Afghanistan, mm-hmm. which was supposed to be a sort of precision operation to right. address the person who organized the attacks. Right, the last... That, out of control. Right. Yeah. Lasted 20 and, years. 20 years. <laughs> yeah. And then there was the ginning up to go on completely fictitious grounds to go into Iraq mm-hmm. and the what destruction happened there. Mm-hmm. And then that has just, it's a bad image to say that that destruction has just snowballed through the whole area. Mm-hmm. Um and in actually in an ever-widening sphere, I'm thinking of the mass kidnappings in the Sahara. Um, yeah. And, I mean, I, yeah, I, you, can't, you can't stop thinking of instances where we just have become our worst selves. I just don't understand it. I felt in the arguments about the Muslim Center, in the arguments about going into Afghanistan, in the arguments about going into Iraq, mm-hmm. I felt like my fears, my still active fears, were being manipulated mm-hmm. by people in power for their own ends. And I was not convinced that, that what they thought was the right idea was the right idea. Since that time, our whole, I think we're beginning, I'm going to counter what you said earlier. I Mm -hmm. think we're beginning to talk about slavery. I think we're beginning to talk about the legacy of colonialism and imperial power. I think we're beginning to talk about how to have a pluralistic society where there's room for a different mix of people than the kinds of different the different kinds of people that my grandparents and my great grandparents were part of when they came here as immigrants. I think if we don't give up on ourselves and if we if we spend some money on education, because I think that gutting public education has been one of the root causes of where we are now. Mm-hmm. Uh, people can't hold two conflicting thoughts in their heads at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, and that's an oversimplification, mm-hmm. but, you know, beginning in the 80s, we started dumbing down the culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is, in some ways, to me, what we're living in now with with a lot of the problems is the direct result of our valuing ignorance mm-hmm. uh, because it costs too much money in the short term to educate people well. Well, there's also an advantage, right, of keeping the masses ignorant, which is that they're easier to manipulate. Well, there was an advantage, but if the masses become aware that they're being manipulated and they rise up, then the whole system comes down. So the vested interests in the systems are shooting themselves in the foot. (laughs) I think until something like January 6th happened, I don't think they believe that 
their houses were shakable. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So, and, now, and now some of them are pretending that even though they were shaken, they, well, they aren't shakable. It's arguing counter to fact, counter to observation. I mean, I guess I feel in these times, if my book offers anything, it's affirming the centrality of accurate observation and honest viewing of what's going on. Well, I think, I mean, obviously I do have a sense of hope. Otherwise, I would just stop writing as you did for the six months following 9-11. Because yeah. there is a point where you just think, what's the point of writing, right? You know, like, what's the point of words? At the same time, the thing is, because society is made of reinforcing actions, right? When uh-huh. When people have such... For good reasons, too, because the government have done so much during in, in many decades, not just the 80s, but before that, the overthrow of other governments, for instance, that our government refused to acknowledge. These actions and then also doing things, uh, the Tuskegee experiments, experimenting on African-American people of diseases, it makes people disbelieve government actions. It causes people to distrust government actions such as the COVID vaccine. And that doubt makes sense. Absolutely. So in a way, is the government in itself, our unique way of government is every four years, some it might change into completely different political party hands. Uh, and that distance between the two parties are so great that it could just mean night and day kind of differences, right? Uh, as we have seen. So we kind of fomented this idea of distrust in authority, distrust in institutions, because past wrongs have been unaddressed, past wrongs have been ignored, unacknowledged, in fact, denied continues to be denied in many quarters. I mean, as we speak, there are water protectors who are being arrested (laughs) despite what we've seen happening with climate change, including this pandemic that we're in. With overpopulation, and yet Texas just upheld that six-week abortion ban. Yeah, I mean, who knows? I mean... The times I've been pregnant, I didn't know I was pregnant at six weeks. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. And, and the, the fact that we are not, when we're talking about terrorism, we're not looking at domestic terrorism, especially when it, talk to, yes. when it pertains to men's groups targeting of women, this, uh, like gender-based violence that causes terrorism is something, again, that's being denied, even though women are the majority of this country. Well, sadly, women have a long history of not understanding what their true interests were. Um, Because if we did and, uh, and managed to achieve some solidarity, we could do something about it. Yeah, like getting the vote, for instance. We it what? was 
getting the vote, for instance, took some yeah. solidarity across community lines. And again, we, as I was saying, you know, it, society is built by concentric circles of actions. And with our, the social media, the way that it is working, that it is like siloing every one of us, uh, we have to make concerted efforts to break out of that. We have to already be in the mindset of searching for different opinions to get out of that. But I think because these concentric circles sort of reinforce each other, that's where my sort of pessimism comes in. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I understand your pessimism, and I know I'm married to someone who feels the same way. Mm-hmm. Having dealt with many, many tough personal issues myself, Mm -hmm. I take the long view. I don't know if the kind of change and inclusiveness and reimagining what the society is based on a more thoughtful, honest, humane paradigm. I don't know whether that's... If that's possible, I don't know if it'll happen while I'm alive. I think it may take a while. But I believe that we have to start because the alternative is dooming ourselves and the planet to kind of things that they used to be that used to be entertaining to watch in science fiction movies. <laughs> And mm. I find my my ideas of entertainment have completely changed. Mm. Not only about, you know, anti-terrorism stuff or gung-ho military things, which was never really my thing, but mm. movies with a lot of violence in them. Mm-hmm. Um, movies where the characters don't look like the way our society looks. If you open your eyes and you see what our society is and its richness as a result instead of looking at it as something that makes you fearful if you're white i mean i'd rather live in this world than in the world i grew up in no questions asked the world i grew up in was largely white suburban comfortable with alcoholism and spousal abuse and incest running through it, like just rotting it from the inside out. Mm-hmm. But if you looked at it from the outside, oh, it was, it was you know, that sort of leave it to beaver world. <laughs> that probably doesn't resonate with you, but... No, I've seen um, it. I've seen it. <laughs> and wh- why did people think that was the minute that I could leave that community I did? Mm. And I moved to New York City. Mm. And I loved it there. You know, when my family, when my parents would come visit me, they would be afraid. <laughs> and I would do everything I can, could to make them feel comfortable. And eventually, they came to love the city too. But it wasn't a slam dunk. <laughs> um, you know, as you could tell from what I wrote about in the poem, This is, in some ways, I could have called this poem Ars Poetica. Mm -hmm. It's the society that I believe in. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a matter of sadness to me that, in fact, New York is not as welcoming as it once was to people 
who come there for all kinds of reasons. I mean, I don't think you emigrate if your life is good. You, you emigrate for all kinds of tragic or existential reasons. Mm-hmm. And building a new life is really difficult. Well, migration is, if we look at all the species, you know, there are birders who thrive <laughs> on migratory seasons, right? And humans are not different from other species in that we do migrate for both tragic and whatever personal reasons that might not seem tragic or dangerous or anything else. And that's okay if we don't strive to kill each other over it. Exactly. I mean, I'm, a, I'm an immigrant to California mm-hmm. very late in life. Yeah. I was earlier in life, I was an immigrant to New York City. My parents, after World War II, left the area in Pennsylvania where their ancestors had settled, and they moved 70 miles away. doesn't sound like very much, but it was a completely different world, and that's where they chose to live their adult lives. Mm-hmm. So I think most families live out in some way or shape the story of immigration. Yeah. Um, In the U.S., we have the advantage of not having to do so much in order to move from state to state or from town to town. You know, I I think we don't realize how difficult that could be for other people in other countries. So we only think of the, you know, people coming from different countries into our country rather than the community-to-community moves which is similar in many ways, right? Because if you don't like where you are living, if where you are living, the area where you're living has less opportunity than another place that you've heard about, then you sometimes you have no choice but to move there. If you can, you move there. So this this kind of, you know, local protection, this localism, you know, or whatever it's called, it's it is very, again, very human. I've seen this because I moved to different communities. I've seen wow. this protectionism from all kinds of different communities. And yeah. it is very concerning and also disheartening when I see it because sometimes it's from people who are for themselves asking to be accepted. So to me, it's very ironic when that happens, right? Um, Yes. Yeah. And, you know, coming back to something you talked about earlier, we're always looking for an environment where we feel at home, Mm -hmm. both in terms of the human community, a place that agrees with us physically. My husband started working in Los Angeles in the early 90s, and He would work out here for several months at a time, Mm. and I would visit him out here. And I was just in love with Los Angeles, Mm. as as ugly as the streets were that we drove. (laughs) (laughs) I loved the sunlight, and I loved the plants and Mm. the the kinds of greens, and I like the desert, and I like, I mean, I love it here, but he did not. (laughs) And. He was a dyed-in-the-wool New Yorker. He was born in a New York hospital. He did not grow up in New York City, but his family 
his grandparents continued to live there. So he thought of New York as his roots. Mm. After 9-11, I was much before him ready to leave. Mm. And having, you know, already seen my family history in terms of waves of migration. Mm -hmm. And it seemed to me I should move somewhere where, first of all, I could restore my health Mm -hmm. and where I could live not constantly coming up against the site, which was just infinitely depressing to me. Mm. And for my husband, the idea of leaving the city where he was born was really painful. Mm -hmm. Even though for both of us, it wasn't really working anymore because so much had been destroyed. Mm -hmm. He didn't want to move to California because of earthquakes. Having he had been here for some of the bigger ones. Mm -hmm. And after 9-11, he said, I'll take natural disaster over human-made disaster. Mm. But his relationship with L.A. is still not as enthusiastic as mine. (laughs) And I respect that. And we'll figure out whether we do another migration or not. (laughs) But we have the luxury of trying to find a place that works better. Mm-hmm. For many people, that doesn't exist. No, no. For many people, yeah, it, it's not a... They sort of depend on the kindness of strangers if they are forced to migrate. And that kindness has shriveled. There's still a lot of kindness, but then there are the competing, you know, yeah. competing interests which are just so nasty hearted um yeah this is coupling with some of the basically the largest number of refugees ever it's well at least a couple of years ago i imagine now even worse i mean it's, it's unbelievable that that if you see the news of the people who are refugees who are perishing on the mediterranean during that pandemic year in 2020, about a thousand people still drowned. Can you imagine that? I mean, what desperation they must have faced yes. at home in order to risk not only dying on, on the seas, but also dying when they reach Europe because of the pandemic. So I wish people were more accepting. I wish people would look at, we all look at our own ways of looking at who is within and who is outside our community and to really talk with each other more because I I think it's not about location. Sometimes it's about mindset, but also to even challenge our mindsets, even challenge the, the idea that we need to be around people that always agree with us, right? Because sometimes it kind of lock us into this single way of thinking. But anyway, we could just talk about this forever. <laughs> and, um, and I we are. We're, we're like on the way. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me about your poem and also about your very important book documenting your experience with 9-11, because I can hear how difficult it is, despite the 20 years that have passed. 
So I was wondering if you can tell us the best way we can, the listeners can follow you, get in contact with you, or to purchase your book, or to, you know, find out what is going on in your next readings. So I announce readings on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. I have a reading coming up in Los Angeles in person, I'm thrilled to say, Mm -hmm. a week from Sunday. Mm-hmm. And I will be announcing remote readings closer to the days. I have a website, and it's my name, andreacarterbrown.com. It has my readings on there. It has information about where you can buy the book. Mm-hmm. It actually has links to places to buy it. Great. And it has information about my other books. And there's, I'm actually pleased I set up a, a dedicated page to this book, which includes images from things that I kept mm-hmm. from that time with little paragraphs about them. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been very busy with this book. It's been incredibly gratifying to see people open themselves to this dark material. Yeah. I've been honored by that. Good. And I include you in that. Thank you. Um, the newspaper where I grew up, which in the town that lost those 11 people, mm-hmm. they published four poems about that town the weekend of the anniversary. That's good. That's good. I think you have mentioned that they were first responders, and I think it's important that we honor them not just yes. you know, in our words, but also in our actions, such as the government you know, putting money into the first responders bonders fund so that they could take care of their health some of which are you know failing badly because of the debris the contamination at the site i'm part of that great that fund Mm -hmm. and every year i have to answer a long questionnaire about the state of my health Mm. as as my husband who also had health issues i had bad news this morning i guess i want to share it the publisher of the local newspaper mm-hmm. for Battery Park City, mm-hmm. which published the poem that I read today, mm-hmm. this week's issue. Mm-hmm. He's been just recently diagnosed with a 9-11 related cancer. So 20 years later, people are still suffering. Right. You know, in perspective, we're alive and we've had these 20 years and hopefully we did something worthwhile with them. Mm. Yeah. As opposed to the families who lost people, you know, I don't think you ever recover from something like that. No. You know, you go on with your life, but it is there, this horrible black hole in the middle of your life. It's, it's always there. Everything is in reference to it. And I was spared that. And, you know, I like in your poem, I spared the terror of direct loss. Yeah. Yeah. And me too. Yeah. We're very lucky in that respect. And And to be as thoughtful as you are about the past, the present, and the future, that gives me hope, even if it doesn't give you hope. (laughs) 
I have hope. I have hope. I just don't know how, what a low we need to reach before we try to climb back up again. That's my fear. So yeah. But thank you again for your time. I really, really appreciate it. I enjoyed talking with you, Imogen. Thank you for having me. Same here. You can find us at poetsandmuses.com as well as on Instagram and Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter at poetsandmuses.com. Now, in addition to the Poets and Muses website and SoundCloud page, you can also listen to the Poets and Muses podcast on your preferred podcast platforms. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you have a safe and healthy week, and I look forward to bringing you another episode next Sunday.